Are you ready for an energetic episode today? My name is Doug Vigliotti, and welcome to It's Not What It Seems. What's up, everyone? As always, thank you for tuning in. I have a high-octane episode for you today. I had an energetic but down-to-earth conversation with the one-of-a-kind Steve Sims. Steve is the founder of Bluefish, one of the top personal concierge services and expert marketer within the luxury industry. So have you ever dreamed of singing with your favorite rock star, being serenaded by Andrea Bocelli, walking the red carpet at A-list Oscar parties, getting married in the Vatican, diving to the wreck of the Titanic, becoming James Bond for a weekend. Well, here are just a few of the highlights of what Steve has been asked to provide for his clients. Forbes and Entrepreneur Magazine have touted him the real-life Wizard of Oz. In short, he makes the impossible possible. Steve creates experiences for his clients that could never have been imagined being possible. Steve is the guy for billionaires, actors, musicians, and celebrities of all kinds, some of which you'll hear about in our conversation today. He's the best-selling author of Blue Fishing, The Art of Making Things Happen, and sought-after consultant and speaker at a variety of networks, groups, associations, as well as the Pentagon and Harvard twice. Steve has been quoted in various publications, including the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, London Sunday Times, South China Morning Post, and many, many more. He's an entrepreneur in the truest sense of the word and known for his honesty, integrity, and doing things his way. For me, it just seems like a no-brainer how Steve has networked his way to the top of the food chain. He's just so genuine and real. He really is one of a kind, and that Irish accent is unmistakable. This conversation was a lot of fun, and it's loaded with practical advice. Steve goes into detail about his journey and the lessons he's learned working with billionaires, actors, musicians, and celebrities of all kinds. We discuss the early lesson his father told him that stuck with him forever, why it's important to just be who you are, why you shouldn't believe what people are telling you, the value of starting from the bottom, the one thing all uber successful people have in common, Steve's essential first step when working with somebody, and Not to jump ahead, but in case you're wondering, I asked Steve after our conversation if I passed the chug test, and I did, so I was honored. You'll see what I'm talking about. Let's not go any further. Let's jump right into the conversation. Here's the man, Steve Sims. Steve Sims, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm super, super excited to have you on the podcast. I'm a huge believer in what I call simplicity compounded. I think you definitely share that core ideology. For me, it's always harder to find a better strategy than passion and persistence. Full disclosure, I loved your book, Blue Fishing, The Art of Making Things Happen. For me, it was just super practical, full of little golden nuggets. We'll get into some of those as our conversation progresses here. A lot of strategies, a lot of mindset shifts that people would be able to apply immediately. I highly recommend it for any entrepreneur or salesperson out there. Plus, you've been called the modern day Wizard of Oz. That might be one of the coolest nicknames I've ever heard. (laughs) Yeah, not too shabby, is it? (laughs) No, 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 no. I kind of want to start off with something a little lighter. So I noticed you're, you're a motorcycle guy, and I'm not at all, but I champion the idea that we should be able to learn from everywhere. So I guess the first question would be, what's a lesson maybe motorcycle riding has taught you or helped you with in business or life? Wow. I'll give you two. I'll first of all say that no one's ever asked me that question. So kudos there. 
done over 300 podcasts, and that's the first time someone's <laughs> asked me. There's one reason I love motorcycling that is related to me in life, and there's one major lesson I've learned from motorcycling. There's millions, but there's one that I'm fixated on. So the first thing I've realized is the reason, is the source of why I like motorcycling is the engagement. If you go 100 mile an hour in a plane, nine times out of 10, you're going to crash because most planes do 300 mile an hour plus. If you do 100 mile an hour in a car, you're still probably checking what radio station you're on. If you're doing 100 mile an hour around a corner with your knee down on a motorcycle, you've got complete engagement. The wind, the noise, the smell, you've got everything. So for me, motorcycling is engagement. And everything I do, I try to engage all of your senses in all of my communication. So the first thing that's made me realizing why I'm so addicted to, to motorcycling is his commitment to engagement. It's 100% engaged. The a tactile feel back from the bike, from the, from the experience. Oh, you get everything. You know, you can be in a car. You've got four wheels soaking up the suspension. You've got four wheels getting you away from the sense and all of those electrics under you doing all the controlling for you. When you're on a motorcycle, there's two wheels. You bend over too far, you fall off. You don't bend over far enough, you fall off. You go too fast, you fall off. There's an instant consequence that comes with not paying attention, not being committed, not being engaged. And I don't want to rant, but I've actually got, I've got a big issue on consequence if you want me to pick it up in a minute. But the lesson, one of the lessons I got, and it's funny because you, you, you said it earlier, you can learn the most amazing things from the most unusual resources. So I was at a track meeting one day, and they, the guy was talking about a track. You know, when you, you have a rider's briefing in the morning where it talks about, you know, they laid some fresh concrete on corner five, so take that one a bit slowly because, the you know, the track's maybe a bit slippery there at this kind of the morning. They do a briefing on the, on the racetrack, okay? And the guy told us about a crack that had developed, not enough to be dangerous, on one of the corners. And fair enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's not yeah, thing. Yeah. And he turned around and he said, don't let track fixation grab you. And I, I was like, hang on a minute. What, what do you mean? <laughs> and he turned around and he said, we have a habit of doing what we fixate on even when it's to our detriment. And he said, have you, do you know the amount of times that when you've got a sore thumb, you hit it? When you've got a sore tongue because you bit it, you bite it 10 more times? When you've got a bad toe, what do you do? You stub it. We, we fixate on things. And nine times out of 10, when you're going down the road and you see something on your right-hand side and you go, oh, shit, I don't want to hit that, and yeah. you run over it. You reap what you sell, right? Bingo. Yeah, so it was, just, it was one of those moments that I thought, I know he's talking to me about uh, motorcycling. I know he's talking to me about the track. But the trick is to, to see in your peripheral, to see the crack, but then to sight yourself around the corner and the bike will go where you look. And so if you look at that crack, guess what you're going to hit? That crack. So those are the two things I got out of it. So let me ask, how's that helped you in business? How's that helped you in life? A lot of the times we fixate on the stuff that either we can't control or we're not good at. Yeah. We very rarely fixate on the stuff that we are very good at because for that, when things are good, 
we tend to find them a little bit easier, don't we? Totally. But I remember in my earlier years, I would do what I'm good at, and then I would go, oh, God, I, I, let me look at the invoice, and oh, let me look at payroll. Oh, what about, what about the tax? How's my accounting doing? Hang on a minute. I need to get a PhD in this freaking thing called QuickBooks. <laughs> and I would focus on all those things, which I was actually shit at, yeah. instead of focusing on getting somebody liable. Yeah. So now what I do, and it's, it's a friend of mine, Ari Mizell, that came up with this word, this term that put it into perspective. Don't find a how, find a who. Yeah, learn to leverage resources, right? Yeah, as soon as I fixated on the who, I no longer started worrying about it and I could train my fixation to come back to, okay, did you get the maximum engagement and exposure from that experience? Did you get the most out of that speech? Did you get the most out of that consulting call? And if you can focus on those elements and anything that you are okay at to crap at, you delegate to somebody else, then that's when you can make fixation a powerful tool. Other than that, it's actually a hindrance. It's luggage, it's baggage. So I love that. I think that one of the key things that you're pointing out there is presence, right? Really having presence when you're doing something. And while you're having presence, it's having presence and doing the things that you're really good at and outsourcing everything else. So you're optimizing all of your resources to the maximum potential. I love that. I love that takeaway. So you had mentioned when you were first starting out. So I wanted to talk to you actually a little bit about the early Steve Sims, the Steve Sims before Bluefish, <laughs> before the movie stars, the celebrities, before L.A. So you grew up in London as a bricklayer with your dad, realized that sucked. And then this kind of gets a little fuzzy for me as I was reading the book, went to Hong Kong for a job at a bank, got fired, then had no money, no job in Hong Kong. And then all of a sudden, the essence of Bluefish was born. So I have two questions for you about this journey. One, why the heck did you go to Hong Kong? And two, what did you learn in Hong Kong that ultimately birthed Bluefish? Like most entrepreneurs, we don't fit. And most of the time we're aggravated because things don't go right. You know, we may be in a store and someone's filling in a sales sheet on something we just purchased. And you can be looking at it going, why are you doing it that way? It's so antiquated. I've now <laughs> stood here while you're doing paperwork. You know, entrepreneurs... We like to solve problems. Totally. Okay. So I knew that I didn't fit. And so as a young lad, I tried many things. And a lot of entrepreneurs, we get in trouble when we're young because we try to find where we fit. And sometimes we don't fit in an area and we don't fit in there badly. And we can sometimes get in trouble. So I was constantly uh, trying to find out where I fit. And we didn't know it was called entrepreneurism. You know, this was like in the 80s. I was just a kid from East London that knew bricklaying wasn't for me for the rest of my life. What was going to be right for me? No idea. So I tried a ton of jobs. I got an interview in a bank and basically lied my ass off, <laughs> and they fell for it, and that's when I got the job in Hong Kong. I lasted one day, and I was fired. So I wait, knew wait, I did Wait, wait, How did we get to Hong Kong? How did it get to Hong Kong? Oh, God. So I was trying to skip over it, so I gained credibility, but obviously I'm, <laughs> no, I'm okay. about to lose it. So this friend of mine that I had at school was now working in a bank, and a large proportion of the bank was now moving over to what they called the tiger markets in the 80s and 90s in Asia, because that place was booming, okay? 
So he told me about these mass interviews they were doing for interns at this stockbroking firm in London. So I borrowed my dad's suit and I turned up at this bank and I was walking down the corridor. And at the end of the corridor was this big banqueting room and there was water and coffee and all of these young lads listening to this guy talking about being an intern in this bank. Now, before I got to that hall, on the right-hand side, and I remember it vividly, <laughs> there was another banqueting room. And in this room was not only water and coffee, but the most lavish breakfast buffet I had ever seen in my life. It was the first time I'd ever seen salmon offered up for breakfast. I was a East London bricklayer. <laughs> we didn't normally wake up and think, oh, I'll have salmon this morning. It wasn't something we did. And in that room... It was all the accomplished stockbrokers being told about the culture of Hong Kong, the new place, the new. And so it was an introduction for all of those guys that were going to Hong Kong. So I thought to myself then, I have two opportunities. One, I can go into the other room and try and get a job, or I can stay in here and get fed. So... The worst case scenario, I got a really good breakfast that morning. So that was it. I literally stood there eating everything I could off of this buffet. I'd never seen a breakfast buffet <laughs> like it. And right at the end, the guy turns around and says, gentlemen, ladies, as you leave the room, just make sure our people at the back have got your appropriate details for your welcome package. So with that, I put down my plate, walked up to a girl, and I went, Steve Sims. And she looks at this flip chart and of course, I'm not on there. I'd only turned up 20 minutes earlier. And she's gone, oh, I'm sorry. So I started going, oh, my God, this has happened again. I can't believe And so she wrote down my name and details. Two weeks later, I got a welcome package to send me to Hong Kong. Oh, my gosh. So it was a blag and a half. This was before TSA and all Homeland Security and stuff. But I got this thing, and as I say, I landed on the Saturday, got drunk with them on the Saturday, got drunk with them on the Sunday, did uh, orientation on the Monday, and I was fired on the Tuesday morning. <laughs> this is uh, okay. Okay, so <laughs> although I can un I can unpack this for probably hours, let's uh, let's go on to what ultimately happened in Hong Kong. Now that you're there, you're jobless, no money. Ultimately, this is where, I guess, the foundation was laid for Bluefish. Yep. How did that happen? Tell, tell us about how that happened. So, you're right. I had no job. I had a little bit of money because, funny enough, because these guys had brought me over, they had to pay me for like three months in advance. So, it wasn't a lot of money. And in Hong Kong, bloody hell, that was an expensive place. So, it didn't last longer than a few weeks. Where were you staying? Well, that was <laughs> because they had brought me over and fired me they let me stay in the apartment with the other stockbrokers. Now, all the other stockbrokers hated me because they looked at me as quite simply a fraud. You know, I'd, I'd, tried, I'd tried something, it had failed, and now they were all looking at me like a bit of an idiot. So I would basically go out all night and then go back to the apartment, sleep during the day, and then just make sure I was out of there by the evening so that we never kind of crossed paths. It's <laughs> smart. Yeah, and so I'm at this bar, and I was at this single bar regularly, and the lady that owned the bar came at me one day and she said, and I'm a big, ugly lad. If anyone's seen me, they know I am. It's a, it's a fact. And she came out and she said, we've got some guys at the door in the club. She said, they're causing a bit of trouble. She said, you look big. Can you go and tell them? Now, in Hong Kong, 
they had bouncers, they had doormen. They were obviously Chinese, you know, being the fact is bloody Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah. But when, when these guys came out, they didn't mess around. They came out with bats, hammers. They were nasty lads. So for me, I just walked up there, sat down with these guys, and I said, look, boys, I've been asked to call you down. Bottom line of it is you've got two choices. You call it at night, you pay your bill, you leave through the front door, and you come back tomorrow night. Or you ignore everything I've just said, and a bunch of guys are kind of come out of the back room in a second. More than likely, you won't see Tuesday. So I'm really praying you make the right choice. <laughs> Wish you a good night. I'm going to be out front. Let's see which way this goes. Got up, left, and they all walked out. And as they walked out, they went, thanks, fellow. And I was like, no worries. See you again another night. And the lady came out, and she said, would you work on the door for us? Now, I used to do kickboxing a lot when I was in England. I wasn't fired nor can I dancing. So I said, yeah, all right. So I became a doorman and I realized I didn't want to be a doorman. I realized it even before I started on the first night. But what I did notice was I had a lot of affluent people coming in the club. So I thought to myself, and this was kind of the essence to how I network. This is, I suppose, for the first part of this podcast, of use to anybody. I realized that if I wanted to be in that group of people, I had to bring value. There had to be a reason I could be talking with those group of people. So I started checking out where was the best nightclubs, what private parties were going on, and started networking with these guys going, hey, are you going to Jimmy's party tonight? Do you want me to have a word? See if I can get you in, you know? And I started doing, in the early stages, I was getting tips. Tips were too fluid and flexible for me. So I want to give you a hundred bucks and here's the bad side with tips. You get a hundred bucks and you go, oh, great, I got a hundred bucks. Next guy would give you 500 bucks and then the next guy that gave you 200 bucks, you'd like look at it and go, oh, I just got 500 bucks. <laughs> that, How come he that's did? it? <laughs> so yeah, so this weird thing started happening. So then I started being very easy and going, hey, I can get you in a gym. He's just 500 bucks a person. You want to, you want to go? If you do, great. If you don't, no worries. And started being very blunt and just calling it as it was. Before you knew it, I was getting people into the best parties that people started asking me to throw these parties because I knew the ingredients necessary to make a good event. You're learning it as you're going. And I, I don't mean to interrupt, and I want you to continue the story because this is such a critical lesson. You had mentioned this the first usable part of the podcast, but I'll, I'll be honest, the whole thing is usable because this is the essence of life. We ha You have to be able to embrace uncertainty and understand and take things as they come and be able to roll with the punches and learn as you go. So this is perfect. And I think that this story embodies that wholeheartedly and thoroughly. So let's keep rolling. I love this. Well, it's funny because you'll do something for years and then someone will phrase what you've been doing for 20 years in an easy to understand manner. When I met uh, Joe Polish, Joe Polish turned around to me and he said, the good thing about you is you're comfortable at being uncomfortable. <laughs> and I thought, damn, you know, because he, he, he <laughs> I like hanging around with smart people because they make it sound that some of the things I do are smart <laughs> and I like to sound smarter than I am. But the essence was quite simple that if I could be of value to you, getting your foot in the door with these people, hey, that was easy. Being so irresistible and of value that they don't want you to leave, that's the secret sauce. So I was actually thinking, and it, we all know this story or this saying, you are the combination of the people you hang out with. 
I didn't want to hang out with poor people because I didn't want the essence of me to become that I was poor. I wanted to hang out with rich, successful people so that becoming the combination, I would be that rich, successful person. So I wanted them to have a reason to have Steve Sims in that circle. And it got bigger. And my, my thought process was, these people are going to give me a job. What I never conceived was that I would be the Wizard of Oz. I would be the go-getter. I would be the guy that has worked with everyone from Sorel and John, Andrea Bocelli, the Vatican, Elon Musk. It never occurred to me that I would be a big deal to some of the most powerful people in the world and completely unknown to everyone else until last year when a bloody book came out. But I was quite happy being in that niche, but never knew, never knew that it existed until quite simply I made it exist. Okay, I have a question for you. You're in Hong Kong, you went through those growing pains, learning all those lessons, learning how to embrace uncertainty, learning how to embrace stupidity, right? Like, I love that concept. I want to be around smarter people, right? Like, you want to embrace stupidity. Yeah. So that way you can learn more. It's investing in stupidity to yield smarts later, right? So my question for you is, how do you make the transition into the States? How do you migrate the business over from Hong Kong into LA? I actually didn't. They did. Okay. So... The beautiful thing is that affluent people, or and you can forget the word affluent people, clientele know more people that are like them. So in my world, I had a lot of people that were in businesses and a lot of American businesses, because again, this was the tiger market. So we all know about t-shirts being made in Indonesia and Japan and China and stuff. So I had all the big executives from Nike, Caterpillar Shoes, Reebok, Puma, you know, anyone you could think of that was manufacturing any kind of apparel, I had those people in my network by then. And of course, then when they're making money, then comes in all the people like Rolex, Asprey, Tiffany, and then all the private jet companies like, you know, the jet charter groups and NetJet and Gulfstream aircraft and Sentinel and all these. So all of a sudden, I'm getting this Rolodex on not only the affluent clients, but also what the affluent clients like to or should spend their money on. So I'm now sitting in the middle, throwing a kick-ass party, inviting cool people, and there's the key word, cool people. We even today have an a-hole policy. We will not accept <laughs> a-holes in our crew. So even from a very early stage, if I felt that you were a bit of a dick, but you had money, the dick policy would be far greater than the amount of money you had in your account. So we wouldn't invite you. It's like the trump card when you're playing cards. It's like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> as soon as dick comes, done, you're out. And you're out. I was very well known for making sure that I had a good core crew of people in that room. And I would charge these people 500 bucks to go to this party. Then what I would do is I would go over to the affluent vendor side of my Rolodex and charge them $20,000 to either sponsor it, market it, or brand out the event. I was the guy in the middle getting paid twice. <laughs> yeah. And I was introducing A to B, and making sure it was a value. Now, I've got a lot of people saying, oh, you know, I've got this product. And I'll be like, it's not for my crowd. And they'll be like, 
I'll give you $100,000 if I can be at your party. If you gave me $100,000 to be at my party, I'd never be able to throw a party again. So I would need $10 million. So it became that situation that as long as you made sure that the people that you were inviting saw value in the people that were going to be there, you were okay. As long as those ingredients were there, everything was cool. But never sell your clients or your vendors short because that is the essence of a very short business career. So you put it really well in the book and you say, get the right people to say the right things about you. That's marketing in a nutshell. Oh, yeah. I think I'm hearing that a lot in that story that you just told. I think that that's a great lesson for the audience. And my question for you is you mentioned a lot of people that our audience definitely has heard before. Who was the first person to give you the shot? That first shot. Who was the first person to say the right things about you? <laughs> so you've already realized that I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. Yep. <laughs> and I had a party in Hong Kong and I invited these guys. And then there was this other group that wanted to do something in Monaco. I didn't know where Monaco was then, but I enabled them to get into this event. And I had this guy said to me, hey, I'd like you to look after an event I'm doing in New York. You seem to know your way around. And I said, great, what's it called? Thinking it was like you wanted to do a birthday party or something. It was seventh on six. And that they had purchased IMG that owned the largest fashion show, the Fashion Week, in New York. And that gentleman was Teddy Forsman. Now, I had no idea who Teddy was other than just a cool guy with Brian Moss. And these guys, and there's a key here that I'll, I'll get into very firmly. These guys were saying good things about me because of the way that I was treating them. I suddenly realized very early on that these affluent, wealthy, successful people, 99% of the time, and especially the people that I mentioned earlier in my, in my list off, started off as having no money and working hard. So they understand the value of money. They understand integrity. There's too many people, you can recall this, if you're walking down the street in Manhattan and you see an art gallery, Okay, you walk into an art gallery, nine times out of 10, you've got a pencil thin woman in there that comes over to you, slightly looks down her nose at you and says, um, good afternoon, how may I help you? And this is precociousness. Yeah. Most of the rich people in the planet today, 99% of them never had money to start. Most people don't realize how shit poor Elon Musk was. Yeah. And he's one of the most powerful voices in the planet now. He knows what it's like to share bread over an entire week with his family. Do you think that's an advantage? Oh, hell yeah. Do you know, Gary Vaynerchuk talks about it now. He, he says that he knows what it's like to actually split up toilet roll to make the toilet roll go further. He knows what it's like to get up at 2 o'clock in the morning because the job needs to be done at two o'clock in the morning. I pity those people that get to wake up in the morning and go to work at nine o'clock and then come home at five o'clock because you don't know what you're really capable of. Let's go back to the motorcycle. Most of these performance cars and performance bikes are never driven to their full potential. People buy these Ferraris and they drive around the road maxing out at a quick spurt of maybe 60 mile an hour. You don't know what it's capable of until it wakes up at 130. You don't know what you're capable of 
until you've got the shit kicked out of you, until you've gone broke, until you've been ripped off, until you've fallen flat on your face with a business venture, until you're there and you actually get back up on your own two feet, dust yourself off and go, will that hurt? But I've learned so much from it. Let me go again. It's like the boxer, right? Like the boxer needs to get punched in the head a couple of times to feel the power. Once he knows the power, then the fight really starts. Here's a true story. My dad is a big, thick Irishman. That's my family tree. That's who I am. But he's much bigger than me. We were walking down the street, and I was about, I don't know, 13, 14, you know, young, young lad, thought I knew the world, that kind of stuff. My dad would smoke 300 cigarettes, like, you know, half a day. We're walking down the road. He never said a damn word to me. And as he's still walking, puts his hand on my shoulder and in between dragging on his, on his cigarette, says to me, without looking, he said, son, no one ever drowned by falling in the water. They drowned by staying there. He took his hand off my shoulder, carried on walking. Me, I stopped because I'm like, the fuck was that? You know, I had no idea where it came from, why he said it. It wasn't until 10 years later and probably every single day of my life since that I have a choice to make of whether I accept that failure or whether I do something about it. And I've noticed that the people I mentioned to you and countless of the world's most successful, most powerful people from Steve Jobs to Warren Buffett to Disney to Henry Ford, to Colonel Sanders, any of these people, they all have one thing in common. They're all serial failures, but they didn't allow the failure to define them. They allowed it to refine them. I love that. I mean, if, if that's the only thing that we're able to take away from the conversation, I, I think that <laughs> that lesson alone is, is vital in itself. When was the most recent failure that you can remember that was really hard for you to recuperate from? I have varying degrees of failure. You know, I just came off a two-day racing weekend up in, uh, up in Laguna Seca, and there was a couple of corners I went in hot and run off. So there was failures there. Thankfully, they didn't kill me, but they taught me how to go around a corner better. So... I love failures because failure is growth. You're getting on that edge of friction. When things start to go slightly wrong, that's where you start to expand. I have lost money. I have lost credibility. I have lost clients when things have gone wrong to the point that I've come back and gone, I'm not going to allow that to happen again. And I've learned from them and I've gone forward. So The last one that's cost me a lot of money, I am pleased to say, knock on wood, hasn't been too recent because you kind of notice when you trip on a curb. (laughs) You remember it. You very rarely will ever trip on that curb again because experience always comes three seconds after you needed it most. But the good thing about those failures is it gives you shit tons of experience that you tend to go, well, that contract could have cost me $250,000 had I not learned from this other contract and therefore put that clause in there. So experience can only be there when you fail. Totally. There's probably a lot of people that are listening and and they may be saying, Steve Sims, I can do what he does. But, and the reality is anyone could do anything, but this show is all about, it's not what it seems, right? Like things aren't always what they seem and it's not as easy and it's not as cut and dry, even though it is. And so I always like to give 
the opportunity for the person or someone to, to share some of the sacrifices they had to make along the way and some of the sacrifices that you continue to make this day to do what you do for a career. Okay, so certainly don't want to argue with you. It's your podcast. Argue. But the one thing is I will say very clearly is there's nobody out there that can't do what I do. I openly said when I wrote that book that I am an Irish whiskey drinking biker from East London now doing this with the Vatican and the Pentagon. You don't have an excuse. I can outfail you in absolutely everything. I fucked up at school. Not the smartest guy. My male modeling career has never got <laughs> off the ground. But I'm able to do all of this because I want it. Yeah. And I'm not willing to settle for second best. And that's what gets me up at 2 o'clock in the morning. That's what gets me writing a proposal at 4 o'clock in the morning and then writing it three times again before I send it out at 6 o'clock at night. I'm willing to do what's ever necessary to win. And even though half the time I won't win, they give me the education necessary to win the next few times. So the bottom line of it is you can do everything I do. You read the book. There was nothing in there that was rocket science, correct? I love the fact that it's so practical and that when you're reading it, it makes so much sense. It's primitive. I actually... I had a friend of mine buy the book and he said, you know, Sims, you have pissed me off for two hours while I read that book. <laughs> and I said to him, okay, explain. And he said, because there was nothing in there that was anything that I shouldn't have been doing, but I decided not to, oh, I forgot I should have done. But there was nothing that you can't do in that book. There's nothing in there that says, right, okay, in order for us to get through chapter one, You've got to learn the fine art of Swahili, or you've got to learn how to say these phrases in, in Spanish, or you've got to gain this PhD. It's all very simple, blunt, primitive stuff, which for some reason, this current generation is educating us to ignore, forget, or dilute. And it's the one key word, the one thing you still can't get a bloody app for on the Apple iTunes. It's the art of communication, yeah. and it's dying. There's a great question that you ask in the book. I tend to like questions like these because it challenges you to take a step back and, and evaluate every situation from this lens. And it's the question is, would I want to drink a beer with this person? Now, <laughs> as simple as that is, when you really start thinking about that and analyzing, are your actions lining up with that? Or is that person coming away thinking, do I want to drink a beer with this person? It changes everything about the way you act. And it's so practical and it's so simple, but it, it's, it's a strategic way and a fun way to really learn a lot about how you're behaving in a particular situation. So I was wondering, do you really ask yourself that question? <laughs> oh, did you not hear the story of how that came about? No, I, I, maybe I've missed it. Oh, I shit. All right, so you're now coming up to probably one of my darkest hours. Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> so business was good. We'll circle back into something brighter before we close out. The, before... Oh, no, but again, look, it was one of those empowering moments that without it, I would not be having this conversation with you now. But I was in Asia. I'd now moved over to Geneva, Switzerland. Life was good. You know, everything was rosy. I was about seven years into Bluefish. 
and I had clients literally all over the world. I was constantly in first-class lounges, flying around, meeting people that owned countries, major Fortune 500s, and really doing some amazing things with some amazing people, okay? Entrepreneurs have a habit of when things go really well, what do we do? We fuck it up. We look at it and we go, oh, that website, I better change that. Or, oh, that's been around for a couple of years. If it's not broke, then why are we even looking at it? But we do that as entrepreneurs. We, we get involved. And the daft thing was, from East London all the way through Asia into Geneva, I was the guy on a motorcycle wearing a black T-shirt and jeans and turning up like this. Goatee beard, bald head, about six foot, 240 pound of ugly. This was me, okay? But the funny thing was, and this is what I learned, it takes zero effort to be you, yeah. okay? So I was just turning up. I was there. We spoke earlier about being engaged. I wasn't trying to be anything else. I was me. You liked it? Great. You didn't like it? Fine. There's no disrespect in saying, I don't like that. You know, you, you may go to a restaurant and someone say, oh, do you want some Thai food? No one's going to get offended if you go, oh, I don't like Thai food. Yeah, it's just a preference. <laughs> you shouldn't take it personally when people don't relate to you because quite simply, we're not going to get on with everybody. Now, here's where it got sad. Seven years, I was already successful. I was already making more money than I knew what to do with. That was the crucial moment that both my brain cells got together and had the epiphany that I had to change. So I couldn't grow hair back, so <laughs> I started taking all my earrings out, my eyebrow piercing, I started wearing tailor-made suits. I bought a car. I actually had a Ferrari. And I used to drive around in this Ferrari to these meetings because I thought to myself, again, both of my brain cells working at the same time, I needed to look a certain way in order for you to think I was the person you should give your money to. Now, bearing in mind, I'd already been doing it for seven years. I already had a whole bunch of, you know, I did this, I did this, I did this. I was already well known within that group. Yeah, yeah. But for some reason, I thought I needed to change. So I did. And what happened was, funnily enough, when everyone's going to kind of scratch their head, I started making more money. But I started making more money with people that I had nothing in common with. Because the people that were now attracted to my flashy watch and my flashy car and my sharp suit were also trying to fit in and were shallow and didn't know where they stood and was looking for the thing that would solve all of that, I've made it kind of crisis. And I threw a party in Monaco and I had this yacht and there were some of the most powerful people on this yacht. Now, next to this yacht, true story, next to this yacht was a bigger yacht that didn't actually have a party going on it. I reversed my Ferrari up outside that yacht in my suit, leant up against it, and got a photograph taken. Okay? And here's the dumb thing. I went back to Geneva, and, you know, this was back in the 90s where you kind of got a roll of film from a camera, shoved it in an envelope, and... Anytime within the next three years, you got your pictures back. I got my pictures back, and I'm in the office flicking through these pictures, and there was a picture of me leaning up against a Ferrari outside this mega yacht oh. in Monaco. <laughs> Not the yacht that I had the party on, but someone else's yacht. And I realized 
I wasn't in that picture. Someone I was trying to be and probably everything I freaking hated about people <laughs> was in that picture. And I went into a three-day bender and, you know, I, I locked myself in the office, drank myself stupid, was sick all over the place. It was a very bad three days. And I woke up with empty bottles all around me and like crap and got rid of the car that day put all the suits in the back, went back to my black T-shirt, and I thought to myself, even though I never at the time, you know, when you're drunk, you go, I never want to drink again. But at the time, I thought to myself, if I don't want to have a drink with somebody, I don't want them in my life. If they can't just sit there and tell dirty stories and have a laugh and be at the end of the bar, they're not someone I want to be with because I'm not willing to sell myself Again, and I came up with this chug test, and there's a video to it. So here it is. You're walking up the high street. On the opposite side of the high street, someone's coming the opposite way that's in your world. A family member, a business partner, a client, a vendor, anybody, a prospect, an intern, anybody. Do you, A, quickly look left in the window and pretend as though you're really interested in that mattress store and check on the re reflection to make sure they've gone past before you look up and carry on walking? Or do you run across the road, jump in front of them and go, Bill, how are you doing? Let's go grab a coffee. Let's go grab a whiskey. Let's go grab a drink. Now, based on whether or not it's A or B, is a very clear defining line as to whether or not they should be in your world or not. And if you will turn away and hide from them, get them out of your life. Make space for good people. Because you don't want to make 10 phone calls to people you don't like, but you'll make phone calls all day long to people you love. <laughs> There's something, again, so practical, but so ingenious about this. So much we could take away from so much of the stuff that we're talking about here. So we'll spin out of this just, just a hair. And <laughs> we'll go back to, I want to get into The Wizard of Oz. The, 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 the modern day Wizard of Oz. So when someone asks you what you do, you introduce, you don't introduce yourself as that, but what is the job description of the modern day Wizard of Oz? What does your Tuesday look like? What does a Tuesday look like for, for, for Steve Sims? Well, I, I spend other people's money giving them better cocktail stories. <laughs> I basically get emails, phone calls, texts. I love video texts. And so I will get communicated with by my clients, and I don't have a phone number or any way of getting hold of me on websites, so my business of the concierge element comes through referral, and I will get something along the lines of, Steve, I'm introducing you to Billy. Let's see if he kind of passes the test and whether or not you can help him. He's got a fantasy. He's got a bucket list. He's got some travel. He wants to make something happen. And that's when I'll reach out to him, and I'll go, hey, thank you very much for the referral. Before we do what you want to be done, Let's find out if we want to do it with each other. You know, let's yeah. chat. And I will interview every single client that comes into our company. I do that for my consulting business. I do it for my concierge business. I want those people firmly following the chug test. I want them in my world only if it's appropriate. And there will be people where I go, do you know, this may sound a little bit coarse or harsh, and in a few years' time, maybe you'll understand. Hopefully, in a few minutes, you will, but this isn't right for us. 
but I do know a couple of people that I think it could work for. So let me make those introductions and I wish you all the best. But as far as us getting involved in each other, I don't think it's appropriate. I don't think we're relatable to each other. I wish you all the best. And if you can be that blunt and firm, they usually can go, oh. And then all of a sudden, a few emails later, you'll introduce them to people that you think that they can relate with better. And they're all thankful. Yeah. So that's my that's my day. I love it because you're just qualifying them, right? I mean, you're going back to some of your original principles there of you wanting to optimize all your resources. You want to make the best use of your time, your energy. And you're doing that by qualifying these people, right? You're qualifying them on every single level. And I think this is a big takeaway for many freelancers that do any kind of consulting business or any kind of coaching business or anything of that nature where, you know, really understanding, do I want to work with this customer? Because otherwise you're just not going to get the best use out of your energy, your time. And those are all resources that are limited. So I absolutely love it. So in the back of the book, you share a ton of some of the elite experiences that you've been able to provide various people. And, you know, you talk about creating someone into James Bond for a weekend, having people eating dinner at the foot of the Statue of David with Andrea Bocelli singing. So... (laughs) Here's my question. What's the first step to making someone into James Bond? We make a phone call. Everything starts with a phone call. The first thing I need to understand is not so much what you want to do, but why you want to do it. People don't tell you what they want. They tell you what they think you should be hearing that makes them sound smarter or better. So if someone says, hey, I want to be James Bond for a weekend, that's fantastic. Why? Yeah. Oh, I, you know, um, I grew up on James Bond, and then it comes up with, you know, me and my dad, we always used to watch James Bond together. So all of a sudden, you realize that there's a deeper meaning behind it. And you've got to understand, why do they want something? Because it's only once you find out the why, then you can only accurately provide it for them. You have a great saying in the book that, that mirrors that. It's don't believe what people tell you. Oh, yeah, don't. No one has ever told me what they want, okay? They've told me what they think I want to hear about what they want. And I have never, ever given anyone anything they've asked for. I've given them what they needed, what they truly desired, what they truly wanted, but couldn't tell me. There's a good one that if I may give you an example, if you have the time. Yeah, yeah, definitely go. So we had this guy contact us and he said to me, oh, I want to meet the rock band Journey. And I said, okay, you know, why? He's like, well, you know, oh, I, I, I like Journey. I like their music. That's fantastic. So what are you looking to do? I want to go meet them and shake their hands. That's brilliant. So let's go back a minute. <laughs> why do you want to shake their hands? So you've sometimes got to ask someone why three times to really get down. So here's what it turned out. This guy, when he was at college, used to make money by being the lead singer of a Journey cover band. And... Everywhere through his life, through sickness, through jobs, through education, through relationships, Journey was there with a tune that gave him the theme tune to that chapter in his world. So I said to him, that's fantastic. So basically your theme tunes are Journey songs. And he was like, yep, they are. So you telling me through them being with you since college, the longest relationship you've probably ever had, shaking their hand at a noisy back of a concert venue, that's going to be where this movie ends? 
And he was like, oh, I said, look, let us see what we can do to really give the end of this chapter. As it turned out, we got him to go up on stage and sing four tunes live with the entire band journey and is deemed as the shortest term lead singer of the rock band in history. So how do you make that phone call after you determine that? Do you literally reach right out to Journey or, like, or to the manager? No, no. Or how does, that, like, how, how does that happen? So the answer is yes if you know them, but nine times out of ten you don't know the same people, and we never replicate the same thing. So it's not like we're going to do that experience with Journey 20 times. So what we do is I'm a great believer that and, – and all my education comes from quips and quotes, so I apologize. But no one ever steps onto the roof. They have to go up a ladder. So if I want to get to Journey, the first thing I do is I look at my Rolodex and I go, okay, who's in the music industry? Who knows Journey? Who knows the agent? Who knows the manager? Who knows the band? You know, and I try to find people that appears to members of Journey. And then I contact them and I go, Roger, we haven't spoken for a while. How's the kids? How's the dog? Blah, blah, blah. Hey, do you know this person? I need you to make a call for me. Now, you make sure they're happy. So once they've made the call, then you go back and you go, hey, I want to say thank you. I know you're over there. Please go down to this restaurant. I've covered a great night. And so you always say thank you to people. Yeah. Okay. But by now, you've now been introduced to someone on a level. Now, you just imagine if we had never met and I, I met you in a networking event, okay, which in my situation would have probably been a bar somewhere. <laughs> and I say to you, hey, my name's Steve Sims, and I am incredible. I am the real-life Wizard of Oz. I can do anything from the Vatican to the Pentagon, from the White House to Buckingham Palace. I'm your man. You're going to stand in front of me and go, well, he's a dick. <laughs> he doesn't pass the dick test. He doesn't. He, he ain't getting past the chug test. He's just full of himself. Just imagine... If your best mate came up to you in that bar, pointed at me and went, that guy over there, he's brilliant, he's amazing, he can do everything. Blah, blah, blah. All of a sudden, you're receiving that information from a credible source. Yeah. You're going to listen, aren't you? Totally. And you know the best thing about that? When you do meet me, I can just be coy and humble and go, hey, it's a pleasure to meet you. Because my marketing and advertising has already been done by your best mate. It kind of reminds me, of, again, and people want it more on this. There's a great point you make in the book. You say, don't hide behind technology. And you see this all the time with people doing things online that they wouldn't do in person. Yeah. And it's like, listen, if you're not going to do it in person, I see this all the time with, with people writing emails, especially. They write these emails to people that are like 14 pages long saying all this crazy stuff in it. And I'm like, listen, would you go up to somebody in a bar and say that to them if that's the first time you're meeting them? And the answer is no, nine out of 10 times. And it's like, why, would, why are you hiding behind technology? So I think that this relates to what you're saying here. And you talk about that in a great way in the book. So Steve, we're, we're kind of closing in now on the hour. So I'm going to have three final questions for you. But before I do, I want to ask you, do you have any final ask of the audience, best place to contact you online or connect with you, maybe a social media channel or, or anything of that nature? Well, there's loads of ways I can uh, get hold of you and you can get hold of me. But for anyone out there, you can actually text the word Ugly Sims. That's uh, ugly and then S-I-M-S 
to 345345, three, or you can go to stevedsims.com. There's a bunch of videos on there. If you subscribe to the newsletter, we actually give out free of charge the playbook, which are those tips and uh, cheat sheets in the back of every chapter of the Bluefish and Books. So if you subscribe to that email, you're actually going to get that PDF sent to your inbox along with the chug test video. <laughs> I think that would be totally worth it. Without the tip, the tip sheet is amazing, though. You, you include it in the book, and I, but, but the video, I think, might be worth it in itself. So any, is that it? Anything else? or No, that's the best way to get hold of me. And, and if you go through there, you'll be able to find me. I'm on Steve D. Sims on everything from you know LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook. You know, So I'm in the usual areas. But if you jump on either the texting format or that website, you can find out about my rants that will hopefully not motivate you, but activate you to do something. Cool. We love it. So with that being said, let's jump into the three final questions here. Go for it. What's one quote or motto that you live your life by? Easy. I've already quoted it. No one ever drowned by falling in the water. They drowned by staying there. I love it. And just as a note, I noticed another one that you mentioned. Don't worry about imperfections or something to that nature. I saw it somewhere on your site or something. Yeah, the uh, your perfection is in your imperfections. Love that. What's one book that's impacted the way you think? Oh, so many, but I really like everything by Dr. Zeus. The fact that he completely gets out of reality and just makes it up himself, I love. But there's a book that he wrote called Oh, the Places We Shall Go. Jay Abraham actually gives that book out. It's a kid's book on teaching kids how to don't worry about things when they don't always go your way. Learn to adapt. The end goal will be worth it. But I'll tell you, when an adult reads it, it kind of strikes home and you go, bloody hell, this is some solid stuff. I love Jay. I've read pretty much all of his work. I've done some of his conferences and stuff like that as well. There's one that he hands out to called Obvious Adams. Right. It's, it's kind of into that same line of, line of thought. Anyway, last question. What's the one thing that you want to tell the world it's not what it seems? Celebrity. The celebrities... I was on the red carpet years ago with Steven Tyler, and we were lined up because we were all about to get photographed as we were going into Elton John's Oscar party. And I said to him, I just off the cuff, I said, oh, this is cool. You know, we get to walk down this carpet. And, you know, we were just stood there talking to each other. And he said, there's 15 feet of red carpet here. No one sees the miles it takes to get you to the front of this carpet. Couldn't end it on a better note. Love it. This was Absolute pleasure, Steve. Always welcome back. Can't wait to follow you, see what else uh, the future unfolds for you. Thank you so much for coming on, and everyone go get Bluefish. Great book. Appreciate it. Cheers. Take care. Hey, you. Yeah, I'm talking to you. Do you like good books? I like good books. How would you like to have three new book recommendations in your inbox every single month? Well, if that even sounds the slightest bit appealing to you, then head over to my website, douglasvigliotti.com and click the big red obnoxious bar at the top that says, click here to join my reading list. Each month, I send out one email that reviews three books that I enjoyed and I just talk about the big themes and concepts in each book. I tell a little bit about what I liked about each book and what I was left taking away from each book. And just one more thing. If you like today's episode, please, please don't forget to hit subscribe so you'll never miss an episode and leave a review. You'd be helping me out immensely.